starting at verse 17, and we're going to go to chapter 2, verse 3. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for, your, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we turn to your word because it is abiding, because it remains true forever and ever. Unlike anything in this world, we recognize that your word stands apart from everything else. It alone is inerrant and infallible. Lord, I pray that your word would be applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that you would convict us of sin and righteousness, and that your word uh, would be preached by us to the lost of this world, that we would feel the responsibility and weight that we have as Christians who have the privilege of being adopted into God's family, that we'd feel that weight and the responsibility that comes with it, that we would wish to share the same salvation we have with the world. It's in Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. So I couldn't get away from the evangelism series. I, I couldn't do it. And I really tried to see how I could fit this, uh, to see how I could kind of cap this off. So at Providence, what we've been going through in the evening services is we've been going through Evangelism 101. Kevin has been teaching us how to present the gospel accurately, and we need the motivation to actually go and do it. And then lastly, that 
we need to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. But after you've done that, let's say you've preached the gospel, you've been faithful, you've been relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit does what only he can do, which is convert a sinner's heart to himself. Now what? What are you going to tell that person to do? In my spare time, I listen and I watch these uh, videos on YouTube of Ray Comfort going out and witnessing to people. And I've been, I've been listening to Ray Comfort. He's an evangelist out in California. Um, I've been listening to him for years, and I, I really do love his ministry. And I just want to preface this as I'm not trying to bash Ray Comfort. That's not the purpose in me saying this. But I was taken aback when he was witnessing to gentlemen, and I noticed that he's actually done this quite a bit that while he's witnessing to them, he uses God's law to show them their sin, their lack of capability of making it to heaven, and then he presents the gospel as the good news of salvation. And they embrace it. And near the end of the conversation, he said something that kind of struck me odd and which kind of spurred me on to go in this direction, which is he said, I'm not trying to get you to go to church. I'm not trying to get you to give money or anything. You know, I'm just trying to tell you the good news. You go on your way, and let's pray a prayer. And if you reach out in faith, you know, God will hear your prayers, and he will make you a new creature. And the thing that struck me about that is what he said about the church, saying that, you know, I'm not trying to get you to go to a church. And I I understand his heart. Uh, He doesn't want to be self-promoting, and he doesn't want anyone to confuse him with the prosperity gospel, which is trying to win people to Christ to get their money. I understand that. But I don't think that's the way we should do it. Evangelism, that we, when we go out and preach the gospel, I think evangelism actually needs to terminate with people becoming members of local churches. I think that What God's word teaches is that we're to go out, we're to preach the good news that the king has come, died for the sins of his people, and is now reigning over the heavens and the earth. And we're to call out to tell them to reach out to Jesus to be their Lord and their Savior, and to also, when they reach out in faith, the next step for them to do, the end point of evangelism, if you will, is to join a local church. And why I say that is really the main emphasis and the main point of verses 22 of chapter 1 to 2-3, which is that Christians are people who should love the church because God created the church and sustains the church. We should be people who love church, love the saints, love worshiping God. And when we go out and witness to people, we need to pull people into that community, the community that worships God, that gathers together, that gets nourished by his word. I'm going to show that kind of with three proofs, if you will, that we're going to see that the church is the place where Christians belong. 
in the foundation of that place where they belong is because, second point, because God's word is the thing that creates the church. And lastly, the third point is God's word sustains the church. So let's go, let's dive into that. I want to start off with where we're at in the book of Peter. First Peter is a book written to exiles. People who are living in a foreign land. People who don't have uh, an identity. People who, once they became Christians, whatever identity they previously had was gone. Becoming Christians in the ancient world meant that you were now a target for persecution. That your family often rebuked you or rejected you outright. Think of the blind man who was kicked out of the synagogue in the book of John. That blind man gave up everything, confessing that Jesus was Lord. And that's what Christianity has meant. Becoming a Christian, what that's meant for people throughout the past 2,000 years. It's actually a rarity to be in the situation that we're in, right? Well, that we have been in, where being a Christian was something that you did to maybe get an advance in your job, that if you want to be a politician, you need to espouse Christ, at least go and attend church. Typically, that's not the way being Christian has been. We've been a minority. We've been, as Kevin says, rebels against the government, not, su- not submitting to the state's request that we call Caesar Lord. That's the type of people he's talking to. And what he does in the text that we're reading today is he's giving them an identity. And he does it by showing them that they have a place of belonging. Verse 22. Having purified your souls to your, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Peter works a little bit different than Paul. Paul starts with indicatives and then goes to imperatives. Paul goes from talking about the gospel, what it means, and then afterwards goes to an imperative. Therefore, do this. Peter actually kind of weaves those things in together. He weaves in together going from imperative here, love one another, then he's going to provide the foundation. Then we're going to see how he says, hate your sin, and then he's going to provide the foundation of it. So it's all kind of woven together in our text. And if we were to get, catch the weave, if you will, here, of how, why he gives this uh, command to love one another with a sincere heart, you have to look at that paragraph before, which is why I started reading at verse 17. Notice that he, verse 17 said, if you call on him as a father who judges impartially, that you've been bought with the price, verse 19, bought with the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without blemish or spot. Verse 21, through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That previous paragraph was talking about adoption, 
which we confessed. That we have been adopted into God's family. That what Christ did on the cross when he died, and when he died on the cross, died in the death that we should have died, is he reconciled us to God. To where God the Son, the only Son of God, has made us children by adoption. But the thing is, is once you reconcile, once you reconcile that relationship to the Father, what we're getting into at verse 22 is that that necessarily changes our relationships with each other. That those who are also redeemed are also children of God. And how we're to relate to them is family relations. That anyone who professes Christ, anyone who is a member of a Bible-believing church is my brother and my sister in Christ. That's the basis of me loving them because we all belong to God. We all belong in God's family. This first point here is that the church, the reason why we're called to love the church is because the church is the place where Christians belong, and we all belong equally. And this is then going to be, again, reiterated, but in the opposite, at 2 verse 1. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Look at what sin does. Sin separates us not only from God, but it also separates us from other people. Sin is selfish. Sin isolates us from others. How? Well, let's look at each word. So put away all malice, desires to injure other people. All deceit, deceiving someone by concealing or misrepresenting the truth, leading people astray. What else are we to put away? All hypocrisy, the act of laying judgment on other people and us not adhering to that. We're also to put away envy. Envy is when you're displeased at others experiencing good circumstances and gifts, and you're glad when you see other people experience misfortune. And lastly, slander. You're, doing, you're railing against people behind their back, defaming them, tearing them their character down, behind others. This disrupts. This breaks relationships. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 13 says about love. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4 says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and it accidentally skipped it. Love is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. That was an important verse to skip. <laughs> it doesn't insist on its own way. 
this family that we belong to, we're commanded to love, which if you just heard me, those are all actions that we're called to love and be outward focused and repent and turn from being selfish, focusing on ourselves and doing the very sins that isolate and break people apart. What's wrong with family conflict? It takes, off the, it takes the focus off the real division in this world between believers and unbelievers. When we slander, when we uh, misrepresent people, when we lie and deceive people, we create divisions, and we've seen this in church history, in the body of Christ that should not exist because we all belong to the one family of God. This is the community that we belong to. And you can see where this would comfort people who don't have a sense of identity, who don't have a sense of belonging. But what's the foundation of this? What's the foundation of having this community? And this is the reason why we need to pull people into this community. It's founded on God's word, the second point that the church is founded upon the word of God. Look at verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the abiding, living, and abiding word of God. We're going to have to do some investigating here. What are we talking about with perishable or imperishable seed and a living and biting word of God. What is this word of God that causes people to be born again with an imperishable seed? We're going to have to keep reading. 4, verse 24. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You know, this text, verse 24 and 25, that could apply to all of God's word, right? That all flesh, humanity, is like grass, and the glory is like a flower, that it withers and falls off, but God's word abides forever. That could apply to all of God's word. The image here is if, you know, we're just starting spring. My lawnmower was broke. I broke it in December, and I didn't want to fix it yet. I was like, you know what? It was the end. It was the last time I mowed it, and I didn't have to mow it until, like, you know, March. So I didn't need to fix that. Well, I did some things to my lawnmower that was, I left a tank of gas in there, so I had all these problems that I had to troubleshoot. So I got to witness my yard being like this. A field of grass with speckled with flowers. You know, if I didn't cut my lawn, yeah, sure, the grass would have been there, but it would have withered away pretty quickly. And the flowers would have been gone like that. New ones would have been replaced, and it would have been a mess still. But the point being here is that it doesn't last. It's here today, gone tomorrow. And the flowers being glory. Yeah, you know, you have a sea of humanity. 
that history forgets 99% of. And every once in a while, you have a Nebuchadnezzar, you have a Pharaoh, you have a Alexander the Great, you have a Winston Churchill that gets remembered. And it's like flowers, bright spots of glory of man. But most people don't know all those names, don't know about all those people. Everyone eventually is forgotten in the sea of time. And compare that, the glory of man, the transience of man, the temporariness of man, to God. God lasts forever. So yes, this could apply to all of God's word. But when we see a text like this, especially when, I don't know about in your Bible, my Bible marks this out as a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40. There's a uh, quote here that it is always impossible to grasp the meaning of an Old Testament quote in the mouth of a Hebrew without taking into account the context of the original. So let's, let's go back. And I want you to see this. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. I think we need to see this because I think we get a really gra- a good grasp of every, all the information that Peter is bringing into our text. Starting at verse 3 of Isaiah 40, it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low, and uneven ground shall become level and rough, and rough, the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That text is quoted at the very beginning of Mark to, to be, that this is the ministry of John the Baptist. That John the Baptist is the one who is the voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. Verse 6, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All gr- flesh is grass. And it's, all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That's the text Peter just quoted. Let's hear about this word that lasts forever. Because it has a particular referent. Get up, verse 9, get up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. Isaiah is describing the salvation, the good news of Jesus Christ that was prepared for by John the Baptist. That's why now we can go back to 1 Peter. 
that he says, and verse 25, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. The gospel is what we're talking about here. The gospel is the word of the Lord that lasts forever. The word of the Lord, is, which is the seed that is born in people's hearts, that's planted in people's hearts, that causes them to be born again. And this is the foundation of every church. Every church is made up of families. Families that profess faith in Christ. And its foundation is the gospel. Its foundation is the word of God. Its foundation is the same thing that's the foundation at the individual level. And it is so for the church at the organizational level. Lastly, third point. We see that God's word not only created the church, but it sustains it. Verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. What's the spiritual milk? God's word goes by a couple of different names. Milk, honey, sweetness, that it has taste. Milk here is the imagery of nourishment that whereby he uses to grow children into maturity. This is how God's word acts in a human life. In every Christian, that we're not only, the beginning of our life is not just founded in the word of God, in the gospel, especially in particularly. The Christian life is also sustained throughout by God's word. It's how we grow. It's how we're nourished. Without God's word, Christians will starve to death. That's why the church is so vitally important. And it is for us, those who have tasted, and by here he's talking about tasting the milk, experiencing the word of God, the goodness of God in the gospel, they taste and see that the Lord is good, that his steadfast love endures forever. He's quoting Psalm 34 there. What, it, what a Christian, what happens in the heart of a Christian who comes to know God is he has an experience of a relationship with that true God and it leads him to worship. And that worship happens in the context of the people of God. This is what we're trying to draw people into. John Piper said, missions exist because worship doesn't. Mission exists in certain places of the world because worship doesn't exist there. We go out into the world proclaiming the good news because we want to see God glorified. We want to see God being worshipped and elevated some takeaways, some things that we should do in light of this. We should see that everyone who comes into the doors of providence feels loved, especially fellow saints, maybe visiting from other states. We should be able to have a sense of God's love for them and a love for them because they're our brother and sister in Christ. 
Another takeaway could be that our mission needs to be the same as our Father. God's mission in the world is to bring people to faith in Christ, to be part of the local church, and then for them to grow in their faith. And if our evangelism doesn't match God's mission, maybe we're off track. A third thing, God wants us to view each other as family. Members of the body need each other. We're not meant to function on our own. God did not save isolated individuals. He saved a people. If I sold you a car, but I just gave you a steering wheel, you'd be pretty mad. Because if I gave you a part of a car, but did not give you the whole car, you would think you're being ripped off. And rightly so. It's a package deal. Christianity is a package deal. This is why we have saints like Augustine saying, ordinarily, there's no salvation outside of the church. This is what he meant by that. You can't have God the Father as your father without inheriting a family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being so good, so holy. Lord, we thank you that you have desired to save a people for yourself. Lord, you owed mercy to none. You're the God of the universe. You are the Holy One. Lord, sin offends you. And it wrecked our relationship with you. And without Jesus coming to save us, we were lost in sin and darkness, separated from you and constantly sinning against one another and isolating yourselves from the rest of humanity. But God, being rich in mercy, saved us. And we thank you for that. We thank you that Jesus is God in flesh, coming to shepherd his own people. Lord, we thank you that you have called out and had the gospel preached for the past 2,000 years